What's Unfamiliar, the programme that takes those things that you remember that no one you know remembers and puts them out in public so that everyone else can say they don't remember them. Speaking of which, I'm about to completely contradict all of that by saying that Simon McLean has been in touch on Twitter to say that our theme music is actually the theme from the book programme at one point, and Simon's pointed out how much it sounds like Witching Well by Free, which is also true. Anyway, I'm Tim Worthington, as hopefully some of you will remember, hopefully you haven't forgotten that already. Joining me this week is radio presenter and political blogger, Mark Thompson. Hello, Mark. Hi, Tim. First of all, what are you up to and where can we find it? I'm taking a bit of a break from my radio programme, which I uh, do at the Music Mill. Um, I normally upload it to my uh, podcast feed, which is the House of Comments podcast feed, and I normally post about that on my blog, which is markreckons.blogspot.com. And I sometimes pop up on the radio and very occasionally these days, television uh, ranting about politics. It's been a very interesting time in politics recently, but I think most political commentators have kind of reached burnout after Brexit and Cameron resigning and Theresa May. So uh, I think it's uh, I think it's quite nice to be talking about something other than politics, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to say, I've not noticed you ranting about the passport colour, thankfully. So. <laughs> I'm quite happy with my passport colour, to be honest. Aren't we all? But anyway, we're not here to reminisce about old passports. We're here to start with your first choice, which I don't know how many people will actually remember this, but let's see anyway. Richie, I think Herman has a bug in his chess program. I think I've got it. About time, really. Every time the host computer got an ASCII character, it forced a line termination. But when it got a non-ASCII character, it waited for the next character, then terminated. When Ralph said a hexy two, it didn't terminate. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that if Ralph sends it a hexy two before every character, the host computer should accept it. So try it. Mark, I know what that was. Do you want to tell everyone else what it was? Yeah, so this was a television programme, would have been, I think, 1984, based on the house I was in and the arrangement of the furniture, as my memory serves, which was called Whiz Kids. So I would have been about 10 years old when I watched this. It was a US series, and it was about a bunch of kids, one of whom was a very proficient computer hacker. And I think that that's particularly why it piqued my interest, because that would have been just around about the time, probably, that would have heard in the UK a few months after I got my first computer, which was a ZX Spectrum. And so I've become pretty much obsessed with computers and the idea, I mean, obviously at the time I was in a ZX Spectrum and plugging it into your television in your lounge and playing Chucky Egg and trying to write computer programs that drew a little spiral in the middle of the screen. You know, that was about as hacky as it got. But the idea that you could fantasize about plugging it into the telephone network and maybe hacking into NASA or even just, you know, hacking into like a, you know, a local supermarket's computer system or something, you know, was quite incredible. So to watch this television program where that's what they were doing every week, I think that that's why it stuck in my memory. And most people I know went into computer programming, so I don't think most people do remember it. Well, I think that's 
part of the reason why it is a really, I have to say important, because I don't think I actually liked it very much, but it was a very key thing for a lot of people who were quite interested in computers who later went on to, you know, do a lot of, uh, not necessarily hacking, but, you know, things with computers, because this was still a time when there wasn't much TV on, really. You know, there was nothing on in the day, nothing on certain points in the morning, certain points late at night, although obviously we wouldn't be up late at night, but the idea that you could then use the TV out of those hours with your computer was already quite a big thing, and then to see a TV programme with computers on, that was like the next step. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, the, the, the basis of the programme was that they were out solving crimes, both using computer hacking and the BMXs, as I... Yes! <laughs> I was about to mention the BMXs. It's kind of typical of television programmes of the time, I think. Of course, it wasn't that long after War Games, as well, with Matthew Broderick, which was another of those um, kind of, you know, kids using computers to hack, yeah. ha- hack into things. I seem to recall with WizKids as well, that they always seem to be very careful to kind of make it clear that what they were doing was legal. So yes. I think like he, he had some friend who worked in the local newspaper office, and I think they had some contact in the local police department. I think his dad as well was kind of overseeing it a bit. So there was always kind of parental control going on. It was never like he was allowed to just go off and, and hack stuff willy-nilly. And also, I, I think there was some, as you always get in these programs and films, kind of crazy ideas that the computers are almost semi-sentient and kind of talk yeah. to them and stuff. Because it was actually played by a speech synthesis program, the computer itself, which was called Ralph. Right. Although my main memory is that, following on from that, that it caused a lot of confusion with, you know, sort of half-attentive TV watchers at the time. Because first of all, Frankie, the main... I think he was called Frankie, the main kid, and it was played by Matthew Laborteau, who was also... Hang on, was he Frankie in the Red Hand Gang? Anyway, he was the main one of the Red Hand Gang, which was being shown constantly still around that time, which was another gang of kids. Yeah, in anticipation of being on this show, I actually was Googling with kids last night, and I found that out, and I never knew that until last night. I mean, I, you know, I used to love the Red Hand Gang, and that was one of my favourite programmes, and it seemed to be scheduled quite oddly, and I never quite knew when it was going to be on, and I never caught it when it was on. I was just like, oh, it's the Red Hand Gang, brilliant. And I never twigged it was the same kid, maybe because I think Red Hand Gang was kind of mid to late 70s, and this was 83, 84, so he was probably quite a lot older. I think he was geeked up with glasses and stuff, so he probably didn't look the same. But yeah, I mean, I guess WizKids was a bit like the Red Hand Gang, but with computers. And he was also on Little House on the Prairie around the same time as well, which is even more confusing. But the other thing was that there was a children's ITV programme called The WizKids Guide. WizKids was American, and The WizKids Guide was as British as you could get. It was like Kenneth Williams, Arthur Muller, I think people like that pretending to be you know the way they were allowed to dress up as school children then it wouldn't happen now but you know d- doing all sort of japes and those the dingbats who nobody remembers were in the middle they used to be on everything where they were sort of like they did acrobatics and like there'd be one dressed as Groucho Marx one as Batman that sort of thing but I remember people getting those two programs confused quite a lot yeah I, re- I recognise the name I don't I don't think I ever saw it though I don't think you really miss much to be honest <laughs> well that's Wiz Kids and I'm sure a lot of you were sort of scratching your heads in complete lack of recognition at that so I don't know what you're going to make of our next choice which is represented by this we tried to work out what was going to be unique about Crash compared to competitors Um, your Sinclair had started almost at the same time Um, and our view was that if a target market was going to be 14-year-old boys, mainly, then it should be 14-year-old boys that did the reviewing under supervision. And uh, various aspects of health and safety and uh, employment law were not in place in those days. So Ludlow School got a huge lift and a pool of, I don't know, 20, maybe even 30, uh, 13 to 16-year-olds used to pile in after school. 
and uh, basically get the games to play. And we gave them forms, which they filled out. Um, and then we took it from there. Okay, well, we're still on the computery theme, but it's actually on sort of, you know, a paper and ink direction this time. Mark, what are you reading? Well, this is Crash Magazine. So this was, uh, I mean, I mentioned my uh, ZX Spectrum a little earlier, and this was really the magazine for people who played computer games on ZX Spectrums. And I, I think I only ever bought a few editions of it, kind of through 1985 through to about 1986, because I think ultimately I didn't have that much money and I, you know, I wanted to spend more money on games and stuff like that. But I, I definitely bought a few editions and it had quite a strong effect on me because it was probably the, the style of it was quite similar to something like Smash Hits, which I didn't really read Smash Hits until I was a little bit older. So probably kind of 87, 88 when I was more like a teenager. But certainly looking back, the styles were not dissimilar. And but one of the things that really stuck in my mind was the letters page, which was edited by a character called Lloyd Mangrum. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who later got his own magazine, LM. Yeah, and I... But he wasn't real, was he? No, I don't think Lloyd Mangum existed. I just think he was an amalgam of the editor. And the editor was a guy called Roger Frey. I think he sometimes was Lloyd Mangrum, and I think his brother, Oliver Frey, and there were there were a few of them. I think they all just chipped in, but he, he could be quite coruscating, he could be quite sarcastic, and I'd not really come across that in a magazine before. Magazines were quite staid things that you read you were sitting in a dentist's waiting room. The idea that there was one that was kind of tongue-in-cheek taking the mickey was quite a new thing for me. And the first ever edition of Crash Magazine that I bought, this is the bit that, I mean, some people might remember Crash Magazine, but I bet most people don't remember this, which was issue 19, which I think was either August or September, September 1985. I know there was a surfer on the front cover, and then towards the end there was there was a little pull-out section that was called Unclear User. <laughs> it wasn't just like a one-page thing. It was about eight pages that were just taking the piss out of Sinclair User, which was quite a staid magazine, I believe. I never actually read Sinclair User. Yeah, I did. I did. It was kind of for the children who, you know, in your class in school where, I mean, obviously your parents bought you a computer thinking you would learn programming. And Sinclair User was for the ones who, you know, sort of took them at that word and tried to learn programming and thought they had to be goody two-shoes. And there was also <laughs> Your Spectrum, which very few people remember, but it was a computer magazine for people who hated computers, really. It was very Python-esque, very deconstructionist, just lots of running jokes about nothing. They pretended the game exists called Advanced Lawnmower Simulator, <laughs> that sort of thing. But Crash was somewhere between the two. It was, I hesitate to say, I had a punk attitude, but like you say, it was that sort of smash hits kind of irreverence, really. Well, the Lloyd Mangrum thing is very reminiscent of Black Type, which was yes. smash hits, sort of the equivalent of that, wasn't it? But the, this pull-out section, this unclear user thing, caused a big stink. I think there was some kind of legal action, or at least threatened legal action, and they actually had to pull the magazine from the shelves and then reissue it without that bit in, but I managed to get it, an edition of it, before it was reissued, and I don't think there were that many of them out there, because I think they pulled it quite quickly. I mean, I, I flicked through it a few years ago, and it was pretty harmless stuff. It was just taking the mickey out of the magazine, and there were some fake adverts. It's the sort of thing you would see on the internet all the time now. It, it would be nothing now. But at the time, I think it caused a little bit of a stir. And like I say, it was, I think punk is probably quite a good analogy. It was quite anarchic, the idea that they'd be doing stuff like that in a magazine that was nominally about reviewing games. I remember, actually, Sinclair used a kind of retaliation to that, where they did an end-of-year quiz that year, where it was supposed to be, a lot of it was very embarrassing. Really. It was them letting their hair down and ho 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 having a laugh. But there's a question about Crash in that scene to remember. A really kind of insulting one. But the main thing that I remember about that quiz was they had a photo of Fred Harris and a computer. And it said, it's like question 17, 
you're a producer at the BBC. What do you base your new programme on? A. An ordinary home computer like this BBC Micro. B. The BBC Micro, the computer that's leading the revolution. C. Was another BBC Micro and said D. The ZX Spectrum. And the answer was A, B or C. Never make a TV programme on a computer people might actually own. What games do you remember that very few people seem to recall? Well, one that really sticks in my mind is it's a game called Muggsy, which, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know how many people remember this. I, I, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who, who remembers it, certainly in recent years. The reason it sticks in my mind, well, firstly, the premise was quite bizarre, really. You were running the mafia, effectively, <laughs> or some kind of organised crime gang. And the thing that was really memorable about it, from a ZX Spectrum perspective, bearing in mind that the ZX Spectrum was not renowned for good graphics. You know, most games you played in ZX Spectrum involved a, a tiny little sprite that probably only had two colours because there was an issue to what's known as attribute clash on a ZX Spectrum, which meant that you couldn't have more than two colours in any 8 by 8 block of pixels. Yeah, well, there were creative ways to try and get around that, but Muggsy sort of bypassed that by having it so that each screen that you came to was drawn kind of you know by the software in the background but they were very detailed pictures and there were quite a lot of them as well it's not like there were just three or four you know there were there were loads and loads of different places you could go and there would be like a really detailed picture of like a gangster with a hat with a kind of you know five o'clock shadow and kind of very film noir-esque images of things going on and like you know you'd see like a doorway and a light coming through and then a very long shadow it really stuck in my mind and I, I, I remember the thing that would really get you in trouble is you're trying to do all the stuff on this game and make sure that you were paying your hood your hoods correctly I think they called them hoodlums, is that eventually the hitman from Detroit would be coming for you and then you try and escape him but you couldn't, you're in some cafeteria and then suddenly it turned into like a little platform game but then I think it was all over by that point. But yeah, it was just, it wasn't really like any other game I'd played before. We were saying before that when WizKids was on there was nothing on overnight on the TV. Now, by the late 80s there was and you'd start to get programmes a bit like this. Hi, we're on the night shift. <laughs> we're getting tense and hungry probably time for a bag of chips let's go and see evening evening got some chips yeah very good just chips or fish vegetable spring roll vegetable spring roll excellent very good what are you ordering uh, nothing, I'm just a bystander. A bystander? Yeah. Just a casual bystander. Yeah. This is an innocent bystander. What are you ordering? I'm having two spring rolls. Two spring rolls. No yeah. chips? No chips, two spring Fair rolls. Enough. You've got your best side, Andy. What are you ordering? Fish cake and chips. Fish cake and chips. Very good. Excellent. Uh, what do you uh, want, Nick, on camera? Do you want some chips? Yeah, Nick wants chips. I've seen him on the telly. Do you want uh, chips, Nick, on sound? And Graham, the producer? No, he'll nick some of us. Okay, well, clearly somebody left the tape running after recording something late at night there. Mark, what was that? That was a quite bizarre television programme that me and my friends at university used to to specifically stay up until half past two in the morning to watch. So it was on uh, when ITV went 24 hours, which I think was about 1988, 1989. I lived in the Granada region when I was growing up, so. I think it was around about then. But I think Night Shift was more like about 91, 92, maybe 93. And what it was, I have imagined what the, the pitching scenario for this was like when they were when they were pitching it to the TV channel. Why don't we get Mr. Bennett from Take Heart, you know, the caretaker who used to do all the pratfalls, and then Tony Hart would shake his head and say, oh, Mr. Bennett, why don't we get him to wander around in the middle of the night and interview people who are doing jobs that are only done at night? That's basically the premise of the programme. But it was even worse 
worse than it sounds because he wouldn't really ask any good questions. It almost seemed to be just after the first thing that came to his head. So two particular episodes stick in my mind. The first one was he was talking to someone who was working in a, like a pizza stroke kebab house at two o'clock in the morning. I don't know what town or city it was in, but there were loads of people staggering around pissed as you would get in a kebab house at two o'clock in the morning. He was trying to interview them about what they were doing and what happens, you know, what happens with the customers. And then he was saying, so, so what, what do you do with the pizza there? So, okay, so you're putting, you're putting a bit of cheese on. Okay. And what are you putting now? I'm putting some pepperoni on. Okay. And what are you, what are you doing now? I'm putting some beef on. Okay. And do you put anything else on? No, that's it. We put it in the oven there. And then you just turn around to the camera and say, we'll see you next time. As if like, you know, my job here is done. We've seen a pizza being created or not even created, just the ingredients sprinkled on gone in the oven that's the end i also remember from that same episode as he was walking to the kebab house there were some pissed up people on the side of the road <laughs> shouting hey mr bennett he obviously never didn't take heart did nobody shout it's the man who created and wrote luna no or nor did they say isn't aren't you that bloke off that there may be trouble ahead advert that's the only other thing i can remember him being it i'm children's bbc's you should be so lucky he was the presenter of. oh well, he was Vince he... purity in that yeah that was it yes i'd forgotten about that completely forgotten the other episode of that i remember was um, he was in an airport at night and I think the fire brigade were testing what they would do if an aircraft was on fire and on some, you know, closed runway or something. And they set a fire going on this aircraft wing and then the fire brigade turned up and then they sprayed a load of foam all over it. And he was just standing around saying, okay, so he sprayed foam on. So the wing was completely covered in foam, like completely covered. And then he just turned around and said, is that is that going to start up again on fire now? Uh, no, it's not. It's not going to go on fire anymore. It's completely covered in foam. Okay, thanks for much we'll see you next time it's only just occurred to me now this never occurred to me before was that what the bits in Brass Eye with Austin Tasseltine at the garage were based on? Possibly. I'm fairly sure that was Night Shift now. Well, Chris Morris was pretty good at picking up on stuff like that. So they, they definitely took the piss out of guest stuff, didn't they? There was yes, an episode yeah. they, they did something about that. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if that was that was parodying that. But it was such a weird thing. And I think there were loads of them. I mean, it seemed to be on all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing was, it seemed like, like you say, like a real fish out of water when it was first on. But I would say that by the end of the 90s, Certainly ITV and Channel 4, and increasingly the BBC started to have full-length things like that on late at night, where it was just, yeah, here's, you know, documentary about some girl who sells hot dogs outside nightclubs. Mm. There was nothing much to them, you know, it was just somebody saying, yeah, and then they do this, and then they do that. Maybe we should have just been grateful it was only five minutes then. Yeah, well, they used to get some really weird stuff when they first started overnight TV. I mean, they're not just the things everyone remembers, like America's Top Ten and the, the indie car racing and so on. I remember repeats of really weird, unexpected things like Journey to the Unknown, that Hammer Anthology series from the late 60s. Certainly that was repeated in the Granada region, I Spy with Bill Cosby was, which you won't see again now. No, I'm Robert Colt. There was, I remember Granada used to put on bits of, again, probably wouldn't see it now, but shows like Shangalang in between programmes, you know, the basically rollers just singing a song. Yeah, they used to have something called Californian Highways, I seem to recall. Oh, yes. It was yeah. just them driving around in California. And the Job Finder, which was just Teletext pages with jobs on. <laughs> job Finder, yeah. I think we did used to, I, I don't think we specifically stayed up for that, but you were still awake at four o'clock in the morning. It was almost a kind of trance-like state you could get into watching that. Well, I see, everyone thought, ooh, there'll be all kinds of, you know, sleaze and filth on. I should watch secretly on a black white portable in my bedroom. And all you ever saw was Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> <laughs> Similar, really cheap American sitcoms. There was no debauchery to be had, sadly. Indeed. Well, speaking of weird things between programmes... 
I mean, everyone remembers the main sort of public information films you used to get, and I'm not going to list all them because I'm sick of talking about them, but here's one that maybe people don't remember. This evening, young Billy Blunders has borrowed the keys to the family car. He's looking forward to an exciting night out, and he's got every confidence in his driving ability, which is more than his dad has. What does he mean he's going to put his foot down? I'll show him what putting your foot down means. Stupid. Whoops. Hello. Meet Andros back again. Hold up. Me luck will be in here. Hello, love. Clear off. Oh, well, can't win them all. I know. I wonder what that little Karen's doing tonight. You could meet Billy Blunders on your way home from work. And no matter how well you think you know the road, no matter how sensibly you drive, Billy Blunders could be round the next corner. That's why you should always wear your seatbelt. Even on the shortest trips, beware of the blunders. Clunk, click. Okay, Mark, we know what the names of those idiots were. It's the blunders, but tell us a bit more about why you've chosen this. My memory of this, I discovered when I bought the Charlie Says DVD about 12 years ago, is actually wrong. So I had in my memory a public information film, quite jaunty happiness followed by someone on a motorbike riding out of the end of the drive, going over a car and then going through a windscreen. And suddenly it became really jarring. And I had nightmares about that. And it was only when I watched the Charlie Says DVD that I realised that what I'd done is conflate two different public information films in my memory. So there is a public information film where there's someone on a motorbike and then I think what happens is they pull out and you see a car coming towards them and then I think it just the action just freezes and you don't see what happens, but I think you might hear a crash noise, but you don't see anything. And then there's The Blunders, which were a series of public information films, which when I watched the Charlie Says DVD, I realised that was the second part of my memory. And the reason is because the start of The Blunders I think there's three of them. So you've got Mr. Blunders, Mrs. Blunders, and then Teenager Blunders or something. Billy Blunders. Billy Blunders, that's it. In each case, there's a voiceover and it's all a bit silly. And, you know, Mr. Blunders is, you know, what's Mr. Blunders like? You know, he drives slightly over (laughs) a roundabout. He's not really looking what he's doing. But the idea behind the public information film is that, you know, you might be a safe driver, but you might come across a Blunders. And that's fair enough. That's, That's a good point to make, you know. That, that's a perfectly valid thing for a public information film to want to do. But what happens at the end of each of these blunders, public information films, is that an accident happens caused by the blunders, and the person who's in the car that the action is on when the uh, accident happens, it suddenly cuts into slow motion. They're not wearing a seatbelt, because that's the point of the advert, you should wear a seatbelt. And then you see in slow motion them go through the windscreen face first. And it's absolutely horrific. And I cannot believe that that was on at a time of day when a four-year-old child was watching it, because that must have been the age that I was when I saw yeah, it. Yeah, I remember being about that age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely horrific. I mean, you would never get away with showing something like that now. Well, yeah, some of them really do still make me wonder how they got away with it. I mean, my big one that terrified me was Jimmy and his frisbee, where he threw it into the substation and went to get it back. Yes. I think I, I'm fairly sure I used to look away just when he touched the Transformer. And I'd grown up thinking, yeah, you know, they probably didn't show anything. When I finally saw it years later, you see him turn blue with an electric shock. (laughs) And not only that, there's on YouTube, there's a a longer edit of him somewhere where his trousers start burning. 
Jesus. And, like, children must have just watched that and been traumatised all day. But they were always shown during the breaks on Saturday morning television as well, weren't they? So that's often, like, the, the, your parents would leave you in front of the television. They'd go off and do stuff for an hour or two, thinking you were safe in front of Tizwas or Terror Hawks or whatever it is you were watching. And then, I mean, some public information films are fine, like, you know, Tufty and uh, Charlie Says and stuff like that. But then you'd get stuff like that. And there were also, there was somewhere I never understood who they were aimed at. There was one where it's basically it said, don't run round corners. Where it had a sort of young woman sort of running round the corner and there's some men carrying a pane of glass round the corner. Yeah, and again, that was done quite jauntily. It's almost almost like kind of Eric Sykes sketch where he's, you know, the plank he's about to slip with his pane of glass or something. There's, there's one that I remember. I heard Robin Ince talking about this recently and made me laugh, actually, because I remember exactly the one that he's talking about. I've even tried to do impressions of it to my wife. My wife is not interested in stuff like this at all. She, does, she doesn't remember any of them because she was never allowed to watch ITV when she was growing up, so she didn't experience all of this stuff. But it's something about um, putting a rug on a polished floor. You might just set him and track. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> it's like really malevolent yeah. voiceovers for things I mean I do sort of wonder in some ways I'm glad they're not on every three minutes anymore but I do wonder what happened to them I mean it's, well, supposedly we're in the era of health and safety gone mad when those Eurocrats from Brussels are always telling us not to jump into an active volcano and so on so you'd think there'd be more now yeah occasionally like so I, I must have been not for the last few years but maybe five six seven years ago I did occasionally Occasionally see one late at night, round about the time when BBC would have been, say, closing down back in the olden yeah. days, around about kind of half 11, 12 o'clock. There would be a little break between whatever programme was on and maybe the next programme, and you would see um, public information on there. I remember seeing one about don't drive fast through roadworks because obviously you could run over someone who's working on the roadworks and a couple like that but yeah you don't see them very often now they're certainly nowhere near as prevalent as they used to be I suspect they're probably still there but not on Saturday morning children's television thankfully well the ones I've seen seem to be on more as I say sensible subjects these days but things like warning against teenage binge drinking and so on and I'm fairly sure I saw one once with Emma Bunton which is I saw it in the middle of the night so I don't know if I hallucinated it but it was something to do with drinking too much alcohol and uh, bedroom performance and she dropped a firework into a glass of wine or something. If anyone knows what on earth I'm on about, that's the whole point of this programme please <laughs> let me know. Anyway, moving swiftly on from me thinking about Emma Bunton at three in the morning, here's a programme that kept me awake at night for completely different reasons. What's going on? Is this for us? I'm taking off. What? What are you talking about? I'm talking about a party at the waist, mate. I'm talking about me driving off in my van. We need that van. Me? We need that van! There is no bunker and there is no Jonathan whatever. Hold on. Oi! No, 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 hang on a minute. You no, get no, out of no. my van! What's going on? But you said you'd take us. That was before I saw it out there. It's over. I'm going alone. No. I won't let you go. Hey, it's my oh, van. Please. We just sat on a train together. I don't know any of you lot a thing. Oh, yeah, and where are you going to go, Nick? Hey? Hey, because you're the one who's got a great way of escaping, aren't you? You're the man with the plan, aren't you? So how are you going to get out of this one? Why don't you just do yourself a favour and listen to me? Right, Mark, I'm famous for my lack of interest in this programme. Can you tell the listeners what it was? Well, my history of this programme is such that I didn't actually watch it when it was first aired. So it's called The Last Train, and it was aired in 1999 on ITV. And I completely missed it, even though post-apocalyptic drama is one of my favourite genres. Um, several years later, I... Um, 
downloaded some episodes, well, all the episodes of it, and watched them in quick succession. And having watched them, I then realised a reference in an episode of uh, This Morning with Richard, not Judy, when I think it might be Stuart Lee's actually telling Richard that he um, he's let people down, you've let such and such down, you've let such from the lacking down, and then Nicola Walker's in the audience and she says, must find off. I had no idea what that was a reference to. I don't know what it was reference to. It was to The Last Train, which is about people uh, on a train, kind of random people who don't know each other in a carriage, and it goes into a tunnel, and then there's a crash, uh, and then they wake up, and they come out of the tunnel, and society doesn't exist anymore. There are no people, and they're trying to understand what happened. And yeah, it just really stuck in my mind, because I really like that sort of genre. And it's also not really the sort of thing you'd have expected to see on ITV. There was only one series of it, and I, all the normal people I you know, had never heard of it and didn't know what I was talking about whenever I mentioned it. So I thought it was worth nominating for this for that reason, even though it wasn't that long ago. It's only, what, 16, 17 years ago it was there. So why don't you like it then? Well, I think it's because it was one of many, many programmes where, I mean, I wrote a long article about this once, that between the end of original Doctor Who and the launch of new Doctor Who, just weirdly, curiously, coincidentally, between those two points in time, there were numerous attempts by the BBC, by ITV, by Channel, even by Sky to produce the, you know, the big new sci-fi hit. And they were always really disappointing, you know, things like Crime Traveller, Virtual Murder, which I loved but didn't quite work, Space Island 1, all kinds of things like that. And The Last Train was really up there with the most misfiring of them. I wouldn't try and claim that The Last Train was brilliantly acted and brilliantly written. It, it was a bit clunky, but I suppose I'm more willing to forgive post-apocalyptic dramas. I mean, the remake of Survivors, for example, which was a few years after. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I think it lost its way a little bit. I mean, but the, the original series of Survivors from the 70s, I think, I still think, is a great piece of work. And the first episode of that was just called The Fourth Horseman. I've watched that about probably six or seven times now. It is an astonishing piece of television because the way it sets up the premise for the series to come. And also, something you just don't really get in television programs anymore, which is literally there'll be 10 or 15 seconds of just, not sure what the technical term is, uh, when they're kind of setting up a scene where you just kind of see the scenery in the background and maybe the camera just pans across and you just hear birds chirping in the background. The pacing of it, and it really makes it feel like it's desolate. Whereas in the remake of it, there's music all the time. Whenever any something has to be happening, there has to be some sort of action. And the whole point of a post-apocalyptic scenario is there would be great swathes of time when nothing would happen. Really get that feeling from like the original survivors. Even the, um, the 1981 Day of the Triffids, that's another one that has that kind of pacing, that kind of eerie feeling that, you know, society is completely broken down. What's interesting about the original survivors is that, I mean, there may not be many people beyond Doctor Who fans who have any idea what I'm talking about here, but generally with Terry Nation, of all his programmes, and this includes the very first Dalek story that he wrote, the very first episode of everything he does is a flawless piece of television. I mean, the first Survivors, the first Blake 7, like I said, the first Dalek story, he did a pilot for Serious Never Make called The Incredible Robert Baldick about a Victorian scientist who doesn't believe in the supernatural. That's fantastic. I'm even willing to believe that the first episode of MacGyver might be quite good, but I've never watched that. Well, one of the very odd things about The Last Train is it was created by Matthew Graham, who a co- only a couple of years later was one of the people behind Life on Mars, which I say after Doctor Who came back, they've been trying to get Life on 
on Mars off the ground for a number of years. Like like Primeval, suddenly, well, like Torchwood as well, all these things were suddenly greenlit once Doctor Who came back. But Life on Mars got everything right, I think. Yeah, and it, it is interesting, actually. Because the production company that produced that also produced Hustle as well, didn't they? Yes. Two Dots, I think it's called. So they obviously produced quite a lot of, of different stuff and different genres kind of trying to merge together there. But um, yeah, I mean, Life on Mars, I mean, uh, that's not something that would be suitable for this podcast, unfortunately, because, um, you know, it's uh, entered the national lexicon with Gene Hunt and um, and all that sort of stuff, hasn't it? But yeah, it, I suppose it is interesting. Speaking of revivals of legendary characters, we're on to your last choice now, which is this. From the monsters of the past comes a new generation dedicated to reversing the evil image of their forefathers. Under the leadership of none other than Count Dracula, known as Big D, three teenagers formed the Do-Gooder group, named the Dracula. With special powers, they can transform into super and mighty monsters and use their skills against all evildoers, especially the diabolical Dr. Dread and his renegade rascals, Toad, Fly, Mummy Man, and Vampira, a group known as Ogre, the organization of generally rotten enterprises. It's right versus wrong, good over greed, niceness against naughtiness. That's the dedication of the terrific trio, Frankie, Howler, and Drac Jr., the Drac Pack. Now, I've not thought about this programme since it was on, but I recall every word of that intro. Mark, what was that? <laughs> yeah, that was a cartoon, which I remember is would have been about 1982 or early 83. I think it was it aired in the US between 80 and 82. Uh, the Drac Pack. So I think there's only really one reason why this sticks in my mind, which I'll come to in a minute. It was about three main characters, uh, one of whom was a werewolf, one of whom was uh, a Dracula, and one of whom was, I want to say, Mummy? I think it was a Frankenstein. Frankenstein, that's right, yeah. But the reason it stuck in my mind is just because you have these three people, you know, teenagers, and they maybe looked a little bit when they're in their normal guises like the characters they turned into. <laughs> but to turn into the characters, they used to have to whack their hands together and say, what I used to think was wacko. I think it's actually wacko. I was reading it online and I think I think it's wacko. And then they would turn into the characters. And me and my friends which used to play that in the playground. We used to whack our hands together and say wacko and then pretend to be those characters. It was a really clever hook that they put in there because that was really accessible for children. You could imagine that you're normal and then you get together with a couple of your friends and you whack your hands together and then suddenly you turn into these magical characters and I'm sure there must have been many many children all around the country and in America who picked up on that and had you know playground games exactly like that beyond that I can't remember a great deal about it. I think there was a mummy I think there might have been a toad as a baddie but I, I probably only watched a few episodes of it to be honest and I literally don't know anyone in fact for a very long time I couldn't even find any references to it online I remember when I first came on the internet the only reference I ever found was on TV Cream. I think I actually wrote that entry. Pretty short <laughs> entry as well. Yeah, because it was it's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, but it's worth saying it's not what you'd expect from a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. It's not sort of zany comedy and so on, because for some reason in the late 70s, early 80s, they were really, really desperate to be seen to be taken seriously. You know, they did a lot of adventure cartoons like Janna of the Jungle, Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends, all of those, and oh, the puppy's new adventures, of course, which never ever seemed <laughs> to end. But yeah, the track pack was part of that it was actually it had sort of comic overtones but it was an adventure thing they fought sort of famous legendary 
baddies as well. I mean, the only one I really remember was it started off, they went to the cinema where a sneak preview was advertised. And uh, in the film they saw, there was, I think it was a mummy actually, was playing tricks on people and said, hey, this sneak preview is a preview of a sneak. And that was how they knew they had to track this mummy down and fight right. it. Right. Like I said, I can't really remember the detail of, of any of the episodes, but it, yeah, I think Hanna-Barbera were very clever at putting things into their cartoons that, you know, that really kind of shined with people. I mean, I, w- one I wanted to choose, actually, which I couldn't choose for this, because it's not obscure enough, is the Hair Bear Bunch. Uh, help, it's the Hair Bear Bunch, rather. Uh, you're absolutely <laughs> right, and you're right to correct me. It's Help, it's the Hair Bear Bunch. And that was surreal in a number of different ways. And I, I never really watched that when uh, when it was first on, but I did watch it in the mid-90s. And I first got cable television, and it was on Nickelodeon. And I, I think it was on Saturday afternoons. I used to do like a, a couple of back-to-back episodes. And quite often I was lying in my house in Liverpool where I lived at the time hungover um, and would just watch Nickelodeon for a couple of hours. And I watched one episode of Help, It's the Her, Her Bunch where, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people will remember this, but they lived in this Wonderland Zoo, I think it was called, and they had, they used to ride off on an invisible motorcycle. They would all kind of get together and they would rev it up and then they would ride off on this invisible motorcycle and the, the zookeeper was always after them and he had the sidekick who was a bit thick. You know, the kind of standard recipe of a kind of Hanna-Barbera cartoon. But I remember one of the episodes where um, I think that her had stolen something from the zookeeper and then they jumped on the invisible motorcycle and ridden off and he said he, he shouted to his um, to his sidekick I can't believe they've done that and his sidekick turns around and says well why don't you call the police they've stolen something off you and he says what and tell them that three talking bears stole my substances and then rode <laughs> off on an invisible motorcycle it was such a kind of meta breaking fourth yeah. wall type situation where it's like but that is what happened in your universe that is what just happened and yet you're mm. acknowledging that that's just insane well that's also before you know before Hanna-Barbera did get serious there was this weird period where they were really picking up on what was fashionable and people forget Hong Kong Fui was made in the middle of the whole Bruce Lee craze but Help It's the Herbert Bunch is particularly odd I think because you know it's a kids cartoon but the theme song sounds like Funkadelic you've also got the three bears one of them's like one of the fairy freak brothers one's like a sort of blaxploitation cool dude you know very sort of minimalist speech minimalist movement and one of them is like Cheech and Chong <laughs> okay well that was your final choice but before we make with the motorcycle first of all thank you Mark I hope you've awakened a few memories in some people and I hope they aren't too disturbed by remembering the blunders and everything we mentioned as a consequence of that no problem thanks for having me see you all next time bye bye <laughs>